must remember to keep in sincere prayer. People like Dave out there who just tells me to keep it short because there's a Vikings game. We have to rebuke the spirit of football here this morning because it's terrible and it's distracting. Now he's writhing on the floor with his tongue coming out. Anyways, and remember to keep in prayer all those poor, poor people down in San Diego who are suffering in the heat. It's just, you know, we are so blessed to be in God's country. And those poor people are just frying alive. I also heard this morning that some 40% of the population in America has had the flu in the last couple of weeks. And uh, I was one of those stats. I don't know about you. So we should have a sermon on healing this morning, but instead we're going to do this. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I'd like us to, to really pay close attention to the, this passage of Scripture. Um, in fact, it's kind, of, it's kind of hard when we haven't had worship, and so we're not really focused. I don't even feel that focused right now. Uh, and, and sometimes I, it's, it's harder to preach sometimes when you do it before worship than afterwards. Uh, you know, our hearts just aren't quite there. Our minds are different, a lot of different places, and we're still thinking about this. I want your attention. I'll do whatever I have to do to get it. I'm warning you. You don't want to see the extremities to which I'll go. What I have in my heart really feels big. Um, it, it, uh, there, there, there's a, a real sense of, of urgency about it. And I really want to beckon you to hang with me on this. This feels like a prophetic word, which means it's, it's, it's somewhat confrontational. Not to us individually, but to the church as a whole. And I want the power to speak uh, truth. And I think if we follow this, last week we talked about following the Spirit and being radically open to God. And this is kind of a part of this because if we hear what is being said here and we take it seriously, it's going to cause a Capernaum revolution in the way we ordinarily think about church. And it has radical implications for our lives. I really want you to hang with me on this. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42. Actually, we should start with verse uh, 41, which says, Those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number in that day. Okay, This is the 3,000 people that were saved on the day of Pentecost. And then this is what happened to them immediately. Next verse. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They devoted themselves gave themselves over to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking together of bread, uh, just eating together, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many uh, wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together. In the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord, because of this fellowship here, added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Lord, we are aware, and we say it out loud all the time, that a speech is just a speech unless your word gives it life. Lord, let your spirit highlight your word to make it come alive this morning. Help me express, Lord God, the the burden that you've put on my heart and to trust you to make it big enough and not struggle with my own attempts. And Lord God, anoint our ears. And God, give us a courageous, graceful heart to hear what we need to hear and let it confront us. 
We ask this in your name. Amen. I want to ask a real straightforward question. Does the church today look like the church that I just read about in the book of Acts? No, it doesn't. I don't think it will surprise anybody if we just say out loud what the church today largely, not always, but largely consists of, at least in the minds of most American Christians. The church is usually defined as a Sunday morning experience, maybe once a week, maybe twice a month, maybe twice a year. That's what the church is all about. It's a place where you go to hear somebody talk about the Bible, a place where you go maybe to hear some nice songs, a place maybe you can call when you're sick and you want a religious leader to come and pray for you. That pretty much says it all. A place where you go and receive what you need to hear. You support the people financially. You support them to do good deeds. And they, in turn, bless you once a week or twice a month or twice a year. But the kind of Christianity that we see outlined here in verses 42 through 47 isn't found that often. Where they're together on a daily basis, eating together, sharing with one another, praying with one another. And if the Bible defines what a whole healthy church is to be, and it does, then we'd have to say out loud that the church, at least in, the, in first world countries, in America in particular, is to some degree, maybe to a large degree, sick. And maybe that is why it seems so weak and often unreal and impotent in doing the kind of things that we know from the Bible we're called to do. What is the cause of this sickness? There are perhaps several things that are the cause of this sickness, but I have on my heart one. Which, I, which is, I think, a central cause of this sickness, and this is what I want to talk about this morning. It came to me Thursday night, 2 in the morning. I woke up. God does this kind of stuff. I know it sounds flaky, but uh, most things that are supernatural sound flaky to us if we're in an ordinary mindset, so go ahead and be flaky for Jesus. But I woke up at 2 in the morning to go to the bathroom, and it all of a sudden hit me. I think that this is the Lord. The Lord can work in any situation. Uh, the Lord... It, the, the, the thing that was on my mind, it was on my heart, that really impressed me as I was wrestling with this kind of thing this week was the concept of dysfunctional dependency. Dysfunctional dependency. And dysfunctional dependency, I believe, is to a large degree at the source of the sickness of American Christianity. Let me explain what I mean. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean by dysfunctional dependency. A friend of mine, I'll call him Bill. He's 30 years old. He loves his dad, worships the ground, he walks on almost, really reveres him, he's always talking about his dad, and that's not bad, that's a good thing. But Bill so much respects his dad that he doesn't trust any of his own decisions. He never makes a decision without consulting his dad. His dad has to help him balance the checkbook and decide how he's going to spend his money. His dad makes most of the decisions that impact his marriage. It drives Bill's wife crazy. Bill can't get a job on his own. He's got to be employed by his dad. He's always under his dad's thumb. Bill doesn't believe that he can be a success apart from his dad. That is dysfunctional dependency. Because Bill is not being the independent man, the independent worker, the independent husband that God calls him to be. He's dysfunctionally dependent upon his father. And his dad gets something out of this. His dad feels honored. His dad feels admired. His dad feels like a hero. And Bill gets something out of it. Bill feels secure. Bill feels like uh, things are going to be taken care of. And Bill doesn't have to make any tough decisions in life. Bill stays basically in a 10-year-old adolescent uh, kind of state of dependency. But it's sick. It's dysfunctional. Much religion 
has been, de- has been delineated by or structured by a sort of dysfunctional dependency. I teach world religions at Bethel. And one of the things that you'll see when you study world religions is that many of them have this in common. There's the idea of a holy man. Usually it's a holy man. Once in a while, a holy woman. Usually it's a holy man. Who is the bearer of religious stuff and the one who is supposed to do religious stuff. And this person is seen as knowing the mind of God like ordinary people can't know the mind of God. And this person is seen as being anointed by God like ordinary people can't be anointed by God. This person functions sort of as, sort of as the mediator between the average common Joe and God or Allah or Shiva or whatever divine being you're talking about in whatever religion you're talking about. There's a mediator there. There's kind of a common assumption. It's almost universal in world religions that the average person just can't go directly to God. They're too low. They're too dumb. They're too whatever. But there are special people anointed, called out, specially gifted, and they're the sort of mediators. They do the religious praying. They do the religious rituals. They do the religious stuff. And everyone is sort of benefited by them. But if you want to get to God and know God, you've got to go through them. Now, it happened in Christianity around the 4th century, Actually, began in the late 2nd century, increased throughout the 3rd, and in the 4th, it really became institutionalized. And people began to look towards religious men in that kind of fashion. There's something about human nature that never likes to be very different, and there's a constant pull on us to conform. Israel wanted a king because everyone else had a king. Well, it came to happen in Christianity that if other religions and other people have their holy men, we want to have our holy men. And so, there developed in the 4th century a professional ministry... Religious specialist. Though the Bible calls us all priests, we begin to call these specialists the priest. And no one else was a priest. They're the priest. And even though Jesus says, don't call anyone father in any sort of religious sense, Matthew 23, don't call anyone father in a religious sense, we begin to call them father. And even when Protestantism broke away from Catholicism, the same kind of structure about having people on a pedestal, these people, these mediators, these intercessors who are the religious specialists, we retain that. Only we call them reverends. It's not in the Bible. There's no word reverend in the Bible. In fact, there's a lot in the Bible that I think is very antithetical to revering any person. But we call them reverends. And it was during the, after the first service, I had everyone up in the fellowship room jokingly calling me Reverend Boyd. Reverend Boyd, would you? I feel like, you know, and, and, you know custom is custom, and, and I'm not going to make a big sin out of this or whatever, you know, but I just want to tell you, it doesn't fit me. I feel like, do I, do I look like I reverberate? <laughs> you know, I'm picking up reverberations. Reverend Boyd. Anyone who's around me much doesn't revere me. I, they may think other things of me, but it wouldn't be reverence. But there's this idea that somehow they're up there, somehow they're special, somehow they're holy. That's why there's pressure put on upon ministers, pastors, reverends to, to be sort of out of, you know, out of sync with humanity, sort of uh, super spiritual, glowing, halo-ish, or what have you. And we're not that. I know I'm not that. I know Paul's not like that. Steve's a little closer, but Steve, even Steve's not like that. There is, I don't know how much I should tell you here, but, but if this shocks you, maybe it's because uh, you have a reverberating view of, of, of uh, a, a speaking pastor. And quit reverberating. I, I was, I, I, this is a little aside here, but I was doing a, 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 teaching my son how to plow the driveway, snow plow the driveway the other day. This is just a cute story. It's just a little commercial. Break, but I, I was snow plowing the driveway. My son's seven years old, and he's trying to plow this thing. It, it's really kind of going, you know, rough, but, you know, I want to get out of this business as soon as possible, so I'm teaching him how to do it. <laughs> And we got Christmas lights up and there's a Christmas cord all around and stuff like that. And we're getting, 
kind of close to it, you know. Uh, it, it comes out of the, the driveway with all this Christmas cord and stuff. And it, anyways, I'm trying to teach him how to, you know, let go of the handles when you want to stop the rotator. And so I say, uh, Nathan, let go. Nathan, let go. Let, let, let go! And he doesn't let go because there's too much noise. And we end up hitting the extension cord, and it gets wrapped up into the uh, machine, and the Christmas lights are, you know. I'm thinking you wouldn't have let well, a word came out, and it wasn't a word from God. <laughs> I wasn't having a very good reverberating night, okay? And by this time, the engine had stalled in the smoke, so Nathan heard it. And he looks at me like, you know, he doesn't hear me say that much. There, I'm reverberating again. Uh, and he's looking at me, and I said, Nathan, I'm sorry, I, I shouldn't have said that. And he, being a good little voice, says, uh, well, it was an accident. I had an out, but I, didn't, I said, no, Nathan, I did that on purpose. <laughs> it's a little Nathan. He goes, well, you'll still go to heaven. <laughs> See, God can take our weakness and make a lesson out of it. And I said, you're right, Nathan. We're sorry. No, I'm going to burn in hell for that. No. We don't reverberate very well, and there's nothing in the New Testament that would support this kind of idea. And what happens then is this. If you've got people who, who are the, the, the special reverberators, the people who do the special praying, why is it when you, when you go to some public function, they, they look for a minister to pray? Because we're supposed to be the specialists at praying. Our prayers count more than other people. Huh? We're, we're, the, we're the religious doers. And then everyone else turns into a spectator. They, they turn into passive people, since we can't maybe talk like they talk, we're not going to talk at all. And since we can't pray like they pray, we're not going to pray at all. And since we can't do religious deeds like they can, we didn't go to seminary training, we don't have the degrees or whatnot, we're not going to do it. And so what happens is you develop a core, and this is what happened traditionally, you develop a core religious specialist who reverberates holiness and glory and whatnot, and everyone else is passive. And they get something out of it. The re- religious leaders get something out of it. There's something carnal in us that you know, feel, likes to feel special, likes to feel anointed. You know, people just kind of treat you with this respect. You can really get off on that kind of thing. And I don't mind titles that much, but, I, but when someone insists on it, I get real. Uh, that, that was Reverend Boyd, please. Uh, I, there's, there's kudos you get, feeling unique, feeling anointed, whatever. People just kind of you know, look up to you. They get something out of it. They may burn out doing all the religious stuff, but they get something out of it. And the masses of people get something out of it. Makes their life a whole lot easier. They just surrender all the ministry to them. They support them financially, and then they can feel like they're doing okay. And so we have the professional ministers, and, and we have this dysfunctionally dependent relationship going on. Dysfunctional dependency. It's very much like Bill and his dad. Well, we are just too low. We can't do it. We'll leave it to the specialist. In the book of Acts, the, part, the chapter we just read here, everyone ministers to everyone. And that's what makes the heart of the church tick. Everyone ministers to everyone. They meet together, they fellowship, they minister to everybody. If there's anything, they were devoted to one another in praying for one another. Devoted in fellowship. And that's what made the church tick. If there's anything that is clear in the New Testament, the New Testament stands for anything, it stands diametrically opposed to this pagan idea that there are some human beings that somehow stand a little closer to God and it's their job to mediate the relationship to God to other people. Amen? If the New Testament stands for anything, it stands against the idea that there's sort of this edifice, this, 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 this platform that some people stand on, and they kind of glow there, and they got a little special anointing, and everyone else is supposed to sort of surrender all the ministry to them and stand in awe. 
If the New Testament stands for anything, it stands for the, the truth that we are all alike sinners, but that we're all alike forgiven, and that we've all been placed with the Holy Spirit inside of us, and we all have a call, and we all have a ministry, and the body of Christ is to thrive by us ministering to one another. Amen. It's not the job of the religious specialist. It was never meant to be that. And this thing that happened in the 4th century and has continued on has done nothing but weaken the church. It's true that the New Testament has a concept of leadership. It's even true, I've got to protect myself here, that there's biblical justification for the church freeing people in leadership to do it full time. Okay, there. I'll get a pay. I'm not saying don't give a pay. <laughs> paycheck. But uh, several things about the New Testament concept of leadership have got to confront us. First of all, there's no model, as we said last week, there's no model in the New Testament of a church, the body of Christ, being run by one person, a dictator, an authority, a tyrant, whose idea and will and fiat is carried out throughout the whole church. No, there, there's no model in the New Testament of one person who's supposed to mediate for a group of other people what God's will is. The New Testament concept of leadership is always a plurality of leaders, a team leadership. It's what the Bible calls the elders or the overseers or the deacons or, or, or one time in the Bible, this word occurs once, the pastors. But it's a team thing. And see, that has built into it checks and balances where everyone's committed to hearing from God and getting a direction from God. It has checks and balances that keep the church from being run by the will of one person or the ideas of one person. Second thing you've got to know about the New Testament idea of leadership is that those who are in leadership are those who have distinct gifts for a particular reason, for, 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 with a particular call, but they are just part of the body of Christ. They are part of the body of Christ. They have a, 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 the, 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 uh, the gift of motivating, maybe, the gift of organizing, maybe, the gift of setting a vision, maybe, the gift of, of taking care, maybe, but it's just a distinction of gift. It's not a distinction in hierarchy. It's not a, some kind of a, a raise in holiness or sanctification or what have you. They're just an average Joe, part of the body of Christ. The final thing that we need to know about the New Testament concept of leadership is this. The main purpose of leadership is not to do religious stuff. It's not to be specialist in ministry. The main function of leadership in the New Testament is just the opposite. It is to motivate the masses. It is to motivate the body to use their gifts. It is to help people find their call, help people find their function, their niche in the body of Christ. The main purpose of, of leadership is just the opposite of the thrust it's had throughout church history, and that's to get it off of our backs and to motivate the body to do it, to equip the body. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 that God has given teachers and pastors and administrators, etc., to the church. Why? So they can do all the work? No! Read Ephesians chapter 4. Paul says God's given this for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the body. The church is strong when the church is ministering together, when the people are empowered, when they have say-so, when they feel the call of God, and they hear the Holy Spirit, and they move. And this dysfunctional, dependent concept of leadership has done nothing but undermine that whole thing. The bottom line is this, and you've got to believe this, and if there's a voice in your mind that tells you opposite, it is not a voice of God. You, if you're a believer here this morning, you have gifts. You've got gifts. And if you've got gifts, the, the, the Bible makes it extremely clear in a number of places. 1 Corinthians 12, for example, that God has given gifts to the members of the body of Christ. If you're a member of the body of Christ, you've got a gift. And if you've got a gift, you've got a call, you've got a ministry, you've got a work to do, you've got something, some place where you can be used, you're empowered. 
And it may be that you've been in a dysfunctionally dependent kind of relationship before with religious leaders. And if I want to do all the stuff and get the admiration for all doing all the stuff, I might have a vested interest in not telling you that you have a gift and certainly not leading you to discover that gift and maybe in keeping you suppressed enough so that you think that you don't have a gift. But the truth of the matter is, is that you've got a gift. And the job of leadership is to help you find that gift and help you develop a passion for that gift and help you discern the will of God to use that gift. And if we do anything else other than that, we're being a dysfunctional leadership. We're committed to helping you discover what your gift is. We call it here networking. And if, if this is something that you're searching with and, and exploring, and maybe you haven't ever done that before, but you'll start now. I encourage you to call the church, call Paul and say, yeah, I'd like to find out more about this, uh, discovering my gift. Where can I be plugged in? What, what, what role can I have? Because you've got something in your heart. You need to use it. There are three consequences I want to briefly talk about that happen when we have this dysfunctional sense of dependency, when we have a dysfunctional view of leadership. The first one is this. When people look to the religious specialist to do the religious stuff, they stop growing. In the same way that a muscle cannot grow unless it is used, something that isn't used tends to go into atrophy. It tends to get weaker. So also, to the extent that people have defined their Christianity passively, that, Christianity have, that, that, that Christians have thought that the religious specialists were supposed to do this stuff, and to the degree that they have surrendered stuff that they could do to the religious specialist, to that degree they never grow, they never develop, they never mature. Many times people ask the question, why, why don't I feel more power of God in my life? Why is my life... So mediocre. Why do I always feel like I'm on the fence? Why is my life so plagued with doubts? Why can't I overcome this kind of sin in my life? Why does my life not line up with the kind of life that I read about in the New Testament? We're supposed to be more than conquerors, and my life's anything but that. And there may be a lot of reasons for that, but one reason may be, in fact, I think it's probable that one reason that is the case is that you're not doing anything. We sometimes get this idea that you've got to be totally healthy, and you've got to be totally strong, and you've got to reverberate if you're going to do any kind of ministry. Exactly the opposite is true. If you want to experience more power of God in your life, because your life seems powerless, and if you want to experience more passion in your life, because your life seems passionless, and you want to discover more of the reality of the Holy Spirit in your life, begin to get involved in something. Begin to minister. The more you give, the more you get. The closer you get to the battle lines, the more God equips your life to do battle, and you begin to experience the reality of Christ, the power of Christ. If Christianity seems unreal to you, and it seems unreal to a large number of Christians, it seems like it's just an idea. They don't, they don't understand what this talk about the reality of God's all about. If it seems unreal, it may be because you're living an unreal kind of Christianity. It's unreal because Christianity, hear this now, was never intended to be a spectator thing. Christians were never intended to be just receptors. Christians were never intended to be pew-sitters. God saved us and called us for a vocation. And he equipped you with gifts for a reason. And he's got a call on your life. And, and growth will happen to you and passion will happen to you. And the Holy Spirit benefits of the Christian walk will kick in in your life when you begin to use that, when you begin to minister, when you begin to give. And maybe you've been taught in a lot of different ways that that's not true and that you're a nobody and what you do isn't important and you don't have any kind of gifts and you ought to just leave it to the specialist. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is a lie. It is a lie. A lot of Christians wrestle with unhappiness, and they don't know why. And one of the reasons may be this, but it's never occurred to people to think this. One of the reasons may be because you have a gift, 
that needs to be used. And you know what? When you don't do your gift, you're miserable. You're miserable. If something inside you wants to minister, you've got a gift of encouragement maybe, or you've got a gift of, of counsel, you know how to listen to people, but you've never discovered that, and you've never used it, or you don't know where there's an occasion to use it, you're going to be a frustrated person. You're going to be a, you're going to be a bird that thinks it's a turtle. Something inside of you, picture a bird thinking it's a turtle. I, I don't even know what it would look like. But you're... Plotting along here on the ground, and you think this is Christianity, but, but you think to yourself, there's got to be more to Christianity than this, man. I thought this thing was supposed to take off. We're supposed to be more than conquerors. I'm supposed to have this power of God in my life. You know, I'm supposed to fly, but I, I'm just a turtle. If some pastor told you you're a turtle, let me do the flying. The truth of the matter is you're a bird, and God created you to fly. God created you to soar. God created you to be an eagle. Praise God. And anything that would tell you different is simply not the truth. You've got the wings now. You need to learn how to fly with them. You need to learn how to fly with them. And the job of leadership is to get people to realize their burdenness. <laughs> get, teach people how to fly. Find your gift. Use your gift. Plug in a kind of ministry where you can be used. And there is room for that. You say, well, what else is it to do? The specialists are doing it. You wouldn't believe the room there is for that. And if God puts a gift on your heart, God will make sure there's a place for you to plug into it. And this isn't, the, this, you know, this isn't an indictment on the masses of Christians. This isn't an indictment on sheep. This isn't like, oh, we're such bad people because we think we're turtles. No. The problem, is, the problem is with leadership. I can't believe some of the weird analogies I come up with. <laughs> but maybe you'll, you'll remember it. It's a job, it, it, the problem is with the leadership for creating this kind of codependent relationship. Christians are weak. They don't move into the reality because... They don't use it. They don't grow. They don't exercise their muscles so they don't develop spiritual biceps. Secondly, when, when we are involved in this dysfunctional, dependent relationship, Christianity becomes centered around the specialist. And where do the specialists do their specialty thing? Well, they do it on Sunday morning in a building. And so now Christianity becomes largely defined by going and being a spectator on what the religious specialists do on Sunday morning in a holy building. In the New Testament, the book of Acts here, we saw that there was times where the Christians got together from all Jerusalem and they met in the temple courts because there was a lot of room in the temple courts and they would celebrate and they'd proclaim God and they'd share the word of God. That was okay. A great big meeting. But it's also clear from Acts chapter 2 that that wasn't the central event. The center of the whole thing, the lifeblood of the whole thing, the heartbeat of the whole thing is what the Christians did with each other when they weren't in the temple court, but when they were in their houses together when they were fellowshipping together. That was the lifeblood of the whole thing. But it happened in the 3rd and 4th century that the religious specialists, the professional ministers, took over the definition of Christianity. Now people had to come and hear them, so they erected great buildings. It kind of became a kind of a competition thing because it's a stroke on you if you've got a great building and you've got a lot of people there. That's a kudo for you. So you have that going on. And now you call the building a kind of a holy building. This is a holy place. God meets us here like he doesn't meet us in those little houses anymore. And this is where the religious specialists do their thing, and they call it sanctified, and they call it ministry. In fact, as near as anyone can tell, the idea that you're supposed to dress up to go to church, I'm sure you're all sitting here wondering right now, well, well who came up with that idea? Well, I'll tell you. So far as anyone can tell, that, that happened in the 5th century. 
And because it became kind of a thing among the religious leaders, the religious specialists, to try to get nobility to come to their churches. If the emperor came and, and visited your church, that was a real feather in your cap. But now the peasants, these peasants are in the church. And we don't want to offend the nobility by wearing our peasant clothes. So now it kind of became a thing where the peasants have got to put on as, the best clothing they can have in order to go to church. Not to dress up to look like Jesus like I was always taught. You've got to look your best for Jesus. He doesn't like jeans. He likes your tie. Jesus is a tie wearer. It wasn't for that. It was a dress up for nobility. But now the whole thing begins to take on an air of artificiality. Do you see? It becomes a Sunday morning surrogate kind of Christianity where you go and you be, do and you be and you look like you never, never otherwise would look. It becomes very artificial and, uh, and unreal. And with that comes the third thing, a consequence of this dysfunctional dependency, and that is individualism, radical individualism. If the Sunday morning event defines Christianity as it does for so much of Christendom today. If the Sunday morning event defines Christianity, then everyone just comes there and everything else in Christianity drops off. But when you come together on Sunday morning, you don't know the other person. You're pretty much anonymous. Isn't that how you feel on Sunday morning for the most part, especially in a new church like this? Nobody knows you. You don't know anybody. Well, maybe there's a chance meeting here and there, but by and large, you're, in, you're, 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 you're anonymous. And since that's what Christianity is about, it means that Christianity really... It's an individual thing. It's, it, it's you and Jesus, and your Christianity is just your own little thing. And you come together with other individuals and celebrate it, but there's, no, there's never any connection here. Do you know how many Christians suffer from loneliness? And that ties into another thing that is really common. And this is, I just want to say it as straight as I can, this is heinous in, in American culture. This individualism, which has been around from about the 5th century on, ties into another factor in American culture, and that is a consumer mentality. A consumer mentality. The consumer mentality, which we, as a capitalistic country, really have down pat, is the idea that you want to get the best product you can get for the least amount of money or the least amount of effort. And so what happens when this becomes Christianized is that you... And a great portion of Christendom suffers from this... You get people, individuals, who are defining their Christianity individually and they're out shopping for the best show around, the best thing around, to get as much as they can get with as little commitment as they can get. The plague of this is far more widespread than I think any of us could really recognize. And then when that's, when, when that's not the best product, they go to this best product. And when that's not the best product, they go to this best product. And they never tap in and they never get committed. They never plug in. And therefore, they never grow. They never develop. They never mature. They never discover the passion of Christianity. They never find out what Christianity is really about. They never experience the reality of God because they're floaters. Now, there's a time. There's a time when a Christian maybe has to assess whether or not they belong in this church. There's a time for that. And I've done that a number of times. Well, you've got to say, is my heartbeat the heartbeat of this church? And am I being used with my gifts? Is this a place where I can do ministry? Is this a place where I'm being confronted with the word of God? Is this a place where the, where the spirit of God is meeting us? And if it's not, maybe it's time to ask the question, is God calling me to another place? My wife and I, when we first moved out to Minnesota for about two, almost three years, we spent just doing that, trying to discern where God wants us to be. And, and we made a wrong decision in, in, in the process. No, I don't think this is really where our heartbeat is. There's a time for that. But that's radically different than what we have going on in American Christianity today, where what we've got is a mass of Christendom, an untapped resource of people who are addicted to non-commitment, addicted to rest, addicted to doing nothing, addicted to finding the best program for the least amount of price. And they never plug in to what the ministry is all about. They never come close to doing Acts chapter 2. And you know what? It's not really their fault. 
Because that's all they know. That's all they know. They're just floaters. No commitment. If we look at Acts chapter 2 and we hear it in all of its force and in all of its power, what we see is this. I'm just going to wrap this up by saying this. Though I, my wrap-up is, is going to be four minutes long. See, that's another problem with modern Christianity. We're too time-conscious. But there is a football game today, so we're going <clears> to <throat> move along. Christianity, as we see in Acts chapter 2, Christianity is community. Christianity is community. It's the togetherness, the fellowship of Christians, the ministering together that makes the Christian church vibrant and alive. That's why the main analogy used for the church in the New Testament is the body of Christ. We are a body. You cut off a finger from a body, and that finger isn't good for a whole lot anymore, is it? The finger dies, the finger dries up, the finger can't be used because it's severed from the body. The fact of the matter is, is that we as a church, we need one another. If our Christianity is going to count, we're going to need one another. If we're going to grow, we need one another. If we're going to move into the reality of God, we need one another. But the place where that occurs in the New Testament isn't in the temple courts. Not primarily, anyways. It happens in the households when Christians meet together. Christians get together and they know one another. They fellowship together. They eat bread together. It doesn't happen with a thousand people. It happens with ten, maybe. Here is where the gifts of the Spirit and the gifts of God for ministry get to be used. You've got a gift of encouragement, but unless you're interacting and moving with nine other people, you'll never discover that. But it's in small groups, groups with a gift of encouragement or the gift of hospitality or the gift of helps. The Bible lists a bunch of them, and we'll be talking more about that later on. But here you begin to feel useful. Here you begin to see what your ministry is. You begin to help other people one-on-one. Here's, it's, in, it's in the small groups where healing takes place. You know, the Bible has a whole bunch of exhortations about what Christian life is supposed to be about. Encourage one another. Edify one another. Lift up one another. Pray for one another. Uh, you know, confess sins to one another. Where is this supposed to occur? It doesn't occur on Sunday morning, and it can't occur on Sunday morning, and it shouldn't necessarily occur on Sunday morning. This is a time for us to get together as a group and celebrate and proclaim. It happens in small groups. Where does all the Bible stuff happen? It happens when Christians do Acts chapter 2 and get together. Here's where healing takes place, where there is a context where it's safe to unveil yourself and talk honestly about your life. And, and the Bible puts such a premium on speaking the truth as a way of being made whole. Speak the truth to one another in love. Confess your sins to one another. When does that occur? Maybe some of it can occur up in the fellowship lounge, but that doesn't ha- happen usually and not systematically. We need each other to have a place where we can say things out loud, say things about our life out loud, get prayed for, get loved. That's the third thing that, that, that small groups do. Here you can begin to feel loved. You may feel the love of God when you get together in a temple court meeting like this. But this isn't going to be necessarily conducive to feeling loved. We all need reminders of God's love. We need, we need people to, to show us God's love and model it for us and tell us, remind us of our worth when we forget our worth and remind us of our value before God when we forget our value. Remind us of who we are and who God is when we forget who we are and who God is, and that happens to us. But where does it occur? It's got to occur in small group fellowships, in the household Christianity. The temple court meeting was never meant to be the substance of Christianity. It was never meant to be that. In the temple court meetings, and God's blessed us here, it's great to have great temple court meetings, Sunday morning event where the Spirit of God comes and we celebrate and we sing and we proclaim and, and, and that's great and necessary and we bind together and pray that God increases that. But that is where Christianity is expressed. 
That's not where Christianity is constituted. What happens Monday through Saturday is Christianity. The Sunday morning event isn't Christianity. The Sunday morning event expresses Christianity, but it isn't the substance of Christianity. The place where we grow, the place where we mature, the place where we find our ministry, the place where we do our ministry, the place where we discover the reality of God and have something to celebrate on Sunday morning is when we fellowship with one another. The church is like a turbocharged 20-cylinder engine that's been running on one piston. And if we can begin to empower the masses, which is what God told us to do, begin to get the masses to realize their gifts, the masses to commit to one another, to devote to one another, I can't begin to imagine what God can do with a group like that. But it's got to happen by breaking this model, this stronghold of a Sunday morning event-defined Christianity. This isn't Woodland Hills. This building's not Woodland Hills, and this Sunday morning event isn't Woodland Hills. It's, this is not the church. You know, the Bible never calls a building a church. The church are, is the called out ones. And whenever the called out ones, that's what the Greek word means, whenever the called out ones are doing what they're called out to do, that's the church. The church is what happens at Carol Rawlings' house when people get together and minister to one another. That's Woodland Hills Church. And it's what happens at Paul's house or Barry's house or Jerry's house or Mary's house or Harry's house or even Bill's house. When people get together and minister and love one another, that's Woodland Hills Church. When they encourage one another and accept each other unconditionally, that's Woodland Hills Church. When they get together and pray and God beats them there, that's Woodland Hills Church. Wherever two or three are gathered together in his name and doing ministry, that's Woodland Hills Church. This expresses Woodland Hills Church. The church has no walls. If we get out of this dysfunctional dysfunctional dependency model, there's such an empowering that can happen. Let's pray, God. I've said the words as best as I could, but you've got to bring the reality. God, I pray that you would create a Capernaum revolution and confront our American individualism, confront, Lord God, our isolationism, confront our dysfunctional ideas of what the ministry is supposed to be about, confront, Lord God, the lies that are inside of our minds that tell us that we're turtles when really we're eagles. Lord God, you've got to do it. You've got to do it, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would raise up a body of people here who find their passion and do their passion with one another and are healed and grow in doing that. Let it be done in your name by your, by your spirit. Amen.